I'm here talking to Kendall. I'm here talking to Annie. Kendall's story. I'm covering the Osage Reign of Terror. Content warnings are for overall horrible racist treatment of Native Americans and a brief cameo by J. Edgar Hoover. Also, everybody, we're considering starting a Patreon in like early fall, late summer. If you have any ideas of what you'd like to see, just let us know. Give us a DM on Instagram or email us. Um, you can find us at, at tell no one podcast on Instagram or our email tellnoonepod at gmail.com. Sources are in the show notes. Everything is alleged, but this is definitely tell no one. Enjoy. Okay, to start, I'm just going to preface. This is old timey okay. and it's about Native Americans. So there will be instances of using the word Indian, either like to quote people, either to quote people or like the Office of Indian Affairs, like that type sure. of thing. And there are a lot of moving parts, so I might like just ask for clarification okay. on names. Okay, this is a a um a forgotten piece of Native American history in Oklahoma, sometimes referred to as the Osage Indian Murders and the Reign of Terror. It takes place in Oklahoma in around 1920. Okay. But I have to give some context for what's going on. Okay, so basically, the Osage tribe originated in Kansas, but the United States government kicked them out of their land mm-hmm. and made them move to like a rocky piece of land in Oklahoma. Shitty land in Oklahoma. Yeah, shitty land that is not good for growing. Um, they thought no one wanted to live there, so they gave them that land. Yep. Already deeply fr- frustrating. Right. Okay. In 1897... Oil was discovered on the Osage Indian Reservation. Um, The U.S. Department of Interior managed leases for the oil exploration and production on the land owned by the Osage Nation through the Bureau of Indian Affairs and later managed royalties and they would pay the landowners like dividends on what they got. Okay. So like each person or family who was on the tribal rolls received a plot of land and they were legal heirs to the land. Okay. Native American people. Yes. All received their own plot of land. Yes. Full of oil. Okay. And so oil barons and stuff come in. They buy leases so they can ore there and get the you oil. You get to like pump the oil for a month yes. or two. And they get, and the owners of the land, the Native Americans, get all the money or get a lot of the money. Get a percentage of it. Get a huge percentage of it. Okay. So eventually they become, the Osage tribe becomes the richest, wealthiest group of people on the planet. At that point in At time. At that point in time. Holy shit, I had no fucking idea. Yes. So by 1920, the market for oil had grown so dramatically, cars are becoming more popular. Mm. In 1923 alone, quote, the tribe took in more than $30 million, the equivalent today of more than $400 million. Okay. They're on a fucking gold mine. Yes. Black gold, baby. Yeah. People across the U.S. read about the Osage called the richest nation, clan, or social group of any race on earth, including the whites, man for man. Holy shit. They would send their children to private schools, buy fancy cars, clothes, jewelry, travel to Europe. It is reminding me of Black Wall Street. I don't know that. Well, we can cover it eventually then, but yeah. it is like essentially, uh, I don't know, like a town that the, the black people in this town. Yeah. We're doing fin- like just created like a fucking oasis for themselves. Yeah, and we're doing so well. Yeah, and then there was a fucking massacre there because the white right. people couldn't handle them doing well. Right, very similar. Okay, but many white people believe the Osage could not manage their wealth by themselves, so they would lobby the government to pass a law in 1921, which required that courts appoint guardians for each Osage of half blood or more who would manage their royalties and financial affairs until they demonstrated competency. What the fuck are you talking about? Yes. Okay, you're telling me that white people in general were like, native people are surely irresponsible, can't handle money. Yeah. If if their blood is more than half Native Native, American, they're probably too dumb to handle money. Yes, exactly. So they should have a white accountant person (laughs) to, to like handle it for them. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's kind of what's going on. Also, this is kind of Wild west time um it's like 1920 so it's past the like what you think of but train robin right but it's kind of close there are it's like bonnie and clyde time there's like band there's gangs of people train robin okay bootleggers um prohibition is coming or happening at this time okay so that's the vibe and almost everything i know about this is from the book killers of the flower moon okay 
here we are. It's May 24th, 1921. Um, Molly Burkhart is a resident of the Osage Settlement, Greyhorse, Oklahoma. She is 100% native. Mm-hmm. And one of her three sisters, Anna, is missing. She's been missing for three days. Anna is 34. Molly is 33. Um, Molly and Anna had lost their other sister, Minnie, three years earlier when she was 27 from a mysterious wasting illness. Okay. Anna was kind of known as like a kind of a party animal. So they're like, this isn't that crazy. Like she's been known to like go dancing and drinking for a while and like kind of go on a bender. But it's been three days and like that's kind of weird. Okay. So I'm getting a little suspicious. Okay. Okay. So Molly was a very wealthy member of the Osage tribe. Um, A lot of them were, but she was like almost one of the richest. She owned several cars and had many servants. And a lot of her servants were white. So that was just like twisting things on its head. um, Yeah. And probably like boiling feelings of resentment. Yeah, of course. Um, So she was one of the last people to see her sister, Anna, before she vanished on May 21st. Molly is married to a man named Ernest Burkhart, who is white. Um, He's from Texas. He moved to the Osage Territory when he was 19 to live with his uncle, William K. Hale, in Fairfax, which is a part of the territory. He then met Molly and he learned the Osage language so they could communicate. She had diabetes, so people didn't expect her to live very long, but she's just like, she's trying. Yeah. Okay. His friends ridiculed him for being with her because she was native. So, but also Molly felt obliged to marry an Osage man and have an Osage um, arranged marriage, but they eventually flout these customs and marry each other. Yeah. So they each feel like they were pressured to be with their own kind or something. Yeah. And they each like fell in love with each other. Yeah. Okay. She thought, why would God let her find love just to take it away? So in 1917, they get married. And in 1921, they had a daughter named Elizabeth and a son named James. Molly also was the caretaker of her mom, Lizzie, who was, you know, elder. Molly was like the caretaker of the whole family. She kind of ran things. Anna was a little, ooh. Yeah. And many had died. So the day of Anna's disappearance, it's May 21st, Molly hosts a small luncheon at her house and she's trying to get ready for the party, but also taking care of her sick mom. So she's like, Anna, can you come over and help with our mom? Yeah. And Anna's like, sure, I'll be right there. She takes a taxi. She shows up and she's like visibly drunk. Mm. And Molly's like, you're not going to need much help. You're going to be another problem for me. Yeah. So she arrives drunk and Molly's even a little more pissed because her husband Ernest's family is there they're white and they're she's like you're giving them an excuse to be more racist towards us like they already are yeah obviously that's not her fault but so anna's like takes out her flask she's making a scene and mind you alcohol is illegal so this is like moonshine it's kind of like it's not so chill yeah so anna had recently divorced her husband oda brown um and at this luncheon she starts flirting with ernest's little brother who she had kind of previously dated his name's brian um, but at this party, Brian, she sees Brian asking one of the servants out to dinner. And Anna's like, if you go out with another woman, I will kill you. Yeah. To say that to someone that you have no claim over is yeah. really cool and wild. I'll kill you. Um, <laughs> and Ernest's aunt, the racist, is muttering in the corner about how mortified she is that her nephew had married a native. Fuck you. Yeah. Okay. Move um, on. Um, so Anna's picking fights with everybody. By the end of the night, Brian's like, I'll drive her home. They say goodbye. But she's never seen again. Okay, Brian. So he insists that he just dropped her off at home. Uh Uh-huh. The town starts really talking about this, like, where the fuck is Anna? Because a week earlier, a man, a native man named Charles Whitehorn had also gone missing. On May 14th, he had left his home and had never returned. So people are like, did Anna go to Oklahoma City to go to a party? Like, he could have dropped her off at home and she could have left her home. You know what I mean? Like, no one said she had to be locked in a cage all night. But so now it's been a week since Anna's been missing and two weeks since Charles has been missing. And a worker stumbles upon a decomposing body. There are two bullets in the head, but it's so badly decomposed they don't recognize it yet. Okay. Um, But there's a letter in the body's pocket that has Charles Whitehorn's name on it. So they're like, this is probably Charles Whitehorn. Okay, yeah, he got killed and then labeled. Yes. So around the same time, a different man was squirrel hunting near a creek in Fairfax and finds another body. They go get the undertaker, a man named Sam Mathis, who was also Anna's guardian, and a few other Native people's guardians who he managed their finances. Uh, he couldn't positively identify her, but called Molly, too. Yeah. Molly comes down, and they positively identify her as Anna. Fuck, all right. So another note to think about is law enforcement was like super different at this time. There wasn't like necessarily the police as we think of it. Okay. So the justice of the peace selects jurors from among white men at the ravine where she was found and charges them with determining if her death was an act of God or man. So if it was a crime, they were also tasked with figuring out who did it. 
We the five. We the five. <laughs> okay. So the two doctors in town, they were brothers, James and David Schoen, do the autopsy. Okay. They estimate that she had been dead for five to seven days and they find a bullet hole in her skull. Um, but the bullet was nowhere to be found. They find distinct car tracks at the scene of her body and a bottle of moonshine, but they do not collect any further evidence. That's I, just it. I don't know what you would do in 1920. Yeah. They okay. didn't take any cast of the tires, which they could do, okay. but they didn't. So Molly is obviously leaning on her brother. I mean, <laughs> Molly is obviously leaning on her husband for comfort. Um, I mean, her both of her sisters have died in the last three years. Yeah, you're my family. But um, your brother was seen with her before she died. But your brother was seen with her before and she I died. And I am fucking worried about that. And I'm thinking about that. So someone who knew both Molly and Ernest is quoted as saying his devotion to his Indian wife and children is unusual and striking. Well, fuck you. He's a <laughs> husband and father. <laughs> yeah. His devotion is unusual and fucking harrowing. Yep. To behold. Can you believe it? Yeah, I fucking can. Like setting the scene. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. even though there are a lot of white men, white women marrying native people, it's not all happy, peaceful here. Sure, sure, sure. There's still a clear distinction. So Molly's planning her sister's funeral and undertakers in the town have been known to gouge the prices for families of Osage. They charge exorbitant prices for the burial and the casket equivalent of $80,000 today. Fucking leeches. Like, cause they know they have the money. Yeah. Yeah. We know they have the money, but their loved one fucking died. Yeah. Evil shit. That is like, aren't you worried about your fucking karma? Yeah. Right. You'd think, you know what I mean? Even if you don't have like out of like, altruism like i should be a good person for others aren't you like i will get fucked for this later they don't think they are equivalent in like humanity like it's like they're not like screwing over a person they're screwing over a less than person yeah so it doesn't matter as much yeah so molly's pressuring law enforcement to investigate her sister's murder but they aren't really doing anything she leans on william hale who her is her husband's uncle he had a lot of business in the territory and was like a paragon of the community. He was an advocate for law and order. Um, he moved to the Osage territory when he was younger and amassed wealth and goodwill in the community. He raised a lot of money for charity. He was revered and proclaimed himself the best friend of the Osage. Weird thing to proclaim for yourself, but I accept that. <laughs> yeah. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the county prosecutor questioned Molly and Brian Burkhart. Okay. Um, like just asking Molly what she knows, and yeah. obviously Brian was the last person seen with her. So people are also suspecting maybe it's train robbers, bootleggers, people from out of town because because this town was so notoriously wealthy, they did have a lot of like shady characters roll in. So it's not unheard of. The oil money in the area had outvalued all of the gold rushes combined, Ooh. so it would attract some very shady people. Yeah. People are also wondering about her ex husband Oda Brown. His grief at the funeral was very theatrical and people are like, is that real? Or so after she divorced him, she cut him out of any of her inheritance. All right. And it's important to note that the oil rights, the oil money leases go down by generation. They're called head rights and you can only get them through inheritance. You can't buy them off of someone. Got it. Yeah. So okay. she had gotten him off of that when they divorced, yeah, which is well, you're not normal. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to yeah, me. It's a normal thing to do. Yeah. So since the funeral, he had hired a lawyer and tried to contest that, but he was unsuccessful. So doesn't weeks later, doesn't belong to you. Weeks later, a man who had been arrested for check forgery in Kansas sends a letter to Sheriff Frias claiming that he had information concerning Anna's murder. Is he in jail? Yes. Sure you do. Exactly. <laughs> so the sheriff and William Hale rushed to the jail to see what he has to say. He says that Oda Brown had paid him $8,000 to murder Anna. So they arrest Oda, but within days, authorities can see that they have no evidence. Just this one gu- one prison snitch. Yeah. What are we going to do with that? <laughs> so they release him. Okay. So the county prosecutor decides again to look for the bullet. They never found it. There wasn't one on the scene. You think it'll be easier to find now? Well, they exhume her body to try to look into her brain, huh. but they did not find it. Yeah. And they, they go into like graphic detail about like just absolutely palmerizing her brain to try to find it. And they okay. do not. Okay. So there is no sign of the bullet. And the bullet would be helpful to identify what gun it could have been. Sure. Anything like that. Okay. July 1921, the Justice of the Peace has closed the inquiry. What word? We're over that now? He says Anna Brown's death had come at the hands of parties unknown. And it's the same as Charles Whitehorn. Okay. So Lizzie, their mother, is growing sicker and sicker and eventually passes away. So Molly has another sister named Rita. She's married to a white man named Bill Smith. And he is the first person to raise suspicion about Lizzie's death. And he's convinced that she was poisoned. The mother? Yes. 
Ooh, long, long-term poisoning then if she was sick for a long time? Yeah. Okay. So law enforcement doesn't do anything about this. The families and William Hale put up rewards, but the sheriff is engulfed in a bootlegging scandal. Okay. So he's not doing anything. See, uh, there's a lot of corruption in yeah. this environment. And in like the federal government at this time. So they're like, we should just hire private eyes. Okay. The um, Pinkerton, whoever the yes. fuck. Yes. It's very common in this time period because law enforcement was so corrupt that people were just like, I have to do it myself. Yeah. We have enough money. Let's do it. William Hale hires a Kansas City PI named Pike. Anna's estate also hires a PI named William Burns, who was known as America's Sherlock. Okay, so the PI start talking around town. Anna's servant said that she went to the house after the body was discovered and saw Anna's alligator purse she brought to the luncheon on the floor of her bedroom strewn about. Hmm. So we think Brian maybe was telling the truth about bringing Anna home. Maybe, yeah. She had the she purse. She got home. She was at home at one point. Yeah, whether like whether Brian attacked her in her home or anybody, right. another guy did. She got home. That Somehow day. the purse got in the room. Yeah, okay. So they look into telephone records, which at this time were manually patched through by an actual real life operator. So they find that at 8.30 p.m. of the night of her disappearance, someone called her house from a business, a town six miles away. Someone answered at her house. Okay. They go to the business and the owner says, I didn't call anyone there and no one else would have been allowed to make a long distance call. Okay. So they go to that town's operator and they had no record of the call. So they suspect that someone is paying off operators <gasps> to either falsify or destroy telephone records. Damn it. Okay. Okay. So they're also hearing other rumors. They hear that a woman named Rose Osage in a jealous fury murdered Anna because she was flirting with her boyfriend. Please. I don't buy it. So the PIs install bugs, very like primitive listening devices in Rose's house to listen on the conversations between her and her boyfriend. They hear nothing. Yeah. They do hear from a few different sources that Anna was telling people she was pregnant before her death. Okay. And that would lend itself to the whole like affair idea. Mm -hmm. Like you were pregnant yes, exactly. mistress and you, oh, pregnant mistresses always fucking die. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. Okay. <laughs> Side note, Bill Smith, who's married to Rita, had previously been married to their sister Minnie before she died. He's marrying all of them. Um, Molly and others were like, did he kill Minnie? But since Anna's murder, he had been so like dogged and trying to find out who killed Anna that they were like, I don't think so. And the thing about this is like, whoever the killer is, is like they could easily just be quiet because no one's looking into it. Yeah. Like, don't make a fuss. Yeah. You know what I mean? How did Minnie die? A wasting illness. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Her whole family is just dropping. Yeah. In one way or another. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm frankly thinking, what about the men as well? Right. There's chatter about town that Charles Whitehorn, the man who's dead, that his widow had coveted his money and was jealous about him spending time with an unknown woman. People oh, are fuck. like, could that have been Anna? Was Charles Whitehorn the father of her baby? It would make sense. Yeah. So by February 1922, the investigations had stalled. Pike, William Hale's PI, had moved on. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he had cut his losses. I'm over it. And hit the train. Okay. Sheriff Frias was found guilty and was expelled from office. For the bootlegging? For the bootlegging scandal. Okay. On this day, a man named William Stepson, a 29-year-old... <laughs> <laughs> William Stepson, a 29-year-old Osage steer roper, got a call that night that prompted him to leave his house. Okay. He returned home hours later, visibly ill. Fuck, okay. Within hours, he was dead. Not okay. Authorities believe, obviously, that someone he met while he was out slipped him some poison, possibly strychnine. In this time, coroners were very untrained and unskilled. Osage County itself had no coroner trained in, forensic or in forensics, and they did not have a crime lab. So poison was a very easy way to... So poison was a very easy way to commit. <laughs> so poison was a very easy way to commit murder at this time. It was very accessible. You could just go buy some strychnine because you could use it for anything. Yeah, like I'm killing my dog. I don't know, <laughs> killing a rat. But um, I promise. At that point, the coroner is there for like, hey, if you got your head chopped off, he could he could turn around and be like, they got their head chopped off. Yeah. Beyond that, he's like, I don't know what happens in the body. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of places still, there's not a lot of requirements for coroner. Like, you don't have to be a medical anything to be a coroner. Then what do they do? I don't know. I think you have to be, like, elected, but that's it. Elected to be the coroner? Yeah. Elected to look at a body and go, whoa, brother. Yes. Also, during Prohibition, there were a lot of accidental deaths because of, like, faulty moonshine mm -hmm. and, like, 
grain alcohol being fucked up. March 26, 1922, another Osage woman died of suspected poisoning. July 28th, an Osage man named Joe Bates bought whiskey from a stranger and after one sip began frothing at the mouth and died. (gasps) Oh my God. Wait, are they? Is someone shipping in fucking poisoned prohibition alcohol to them? Perhaps. What the fuck? And are the servants doing it? I don't know. By August, the suspicious deaths made the Osage people encourage a man named Barney McBride, a white man who's wealthy, go to Washington and beg the feds to investigate. Mm -hmm. He was like, sure. He was trusted by the Osage and new people in Washington. So he's like, I'm going to go. And I'm sure they're like, we need a white guy to to represent us. Yeah. Yeah. And say like, no, it's really bad. Like there are a lot of a lot of them are dying. Yeah. So he checks into a boarding house in the Capitol and he receives a telegram from an associate just saying, be careful. Later that evening, he goes to an Elks club. And while he's leaving, someone grabs him and ties him in a burlap sack. And the next morning, his body was found in a culvert in Maryland. He had been stabbed more than 20 times. He had his skull beaten in and was stripped completely naked. Someone does not want them to look into it. Yeah. The evidence suggested that there were more than one assailant. And they suspected that they shadowed him all the way from Oklahoma. Wow. The newspaper writes, conspiracy believed to kill rich Indians. So even with all this going on, oil barons keep coming to town every three months for auctions of Osage leases. The press and the public are getting really riled up about rich Native Americans. Really livid, you mean? (laughs) Yeah. There are rumors of the Osage throwing out grand pianos, replacing their cars when they get a flat tire. Uh Um, Quote, the average adult Osage is like a child six or eight years old. When he sees a new toy, he wants to buy it. Go fuck yourself. So, like I said, guardianship was determined by what percentage of Native you were. Being full blood was almost 100% guaranteed you were going to get a a guardian. Yeah. Um, A mixed person. That's what they they call it. Might be trusted to care for your own yes, money. Yes, rarely was okay. assigned one. Yeah. Great. Okay. So in 1920, Congress had actually sent investigators to check on the Osage spending habits. He came. I can't even believe that. Yeah. I mean, I can fucking believe it. But what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. It's and why the, the 1920s? Do, why do you fucking care? Why is it? Why do you get a say in how they spend their money? Yeah. What the fuck is that? Yeah. It's um insane it is like you're occupying i mean we're all occupying aren't yeah exactly so yeah they sent an investigator to check on the osage spending habits and he came back and testified about a 390 dollars bill that lizzie molly's mom had spent at the butcher okay he compared the osage territory to sodom and gomorrah a cesspool um and quote they're running wild and we have to do something what the fuck are you talking about yeah they're running wild we have to do something hey why yeah why the fuck? It's like, fuck you. All the way I down. mean, like, of course, this is untrue. Like, his report is untrue. And even if it but was if it, it were mind true, your own. Why the fuck I, would you have anything to do with it? I can it? spend my money however the fuck I want. Why the fuck would you have to get involved? Yeah. What are you talking about? It is like the very, um, I mean, I think this is like fucking obvious, but like, so y- they need our intervention. Like, they're, they're running amok. They're yeah. like savages. They're saying like they will destroy themselves because they have no control. Like, they're no, like yeah. self control, yeah. no nothing. No, that, that's a hundred percent the argument. 1920s was like a really insane time for like eugenics and all of it. Yeah, like, yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. a dark, dark age. Yeah. I mean, Every age is fucking dark, man. But yeah. I hear you that like that is like the rise in like Nazism. Yeah. And, like all these kinds it's of Charles yeah, yeah. Lindbergh. I'm looking at you. Okay. Yeah. So others, however, testified that Osage didn't spend their money any differently than rich white people did. <laughs> I'm sure they do not. They do not. Of course. Yeah. Like audit the Rockefellers. Yeah. They need your help. Yeah. <laughs> Hale, William Hale, said that the government should not be dictating the Osage finest. No shit finances god damn it (laughs) (laughs) despite this in 1921 the government tightened the restrictions and made it so that the actual osage people could only withdraw a few thousand dollars from their trust a year are you my dad yeah yeah dada can i have my money yeah even if their children were like sick they could not they're all under a conservatorship yeah exactly it's exactly that it's exactly yeah it's the same thing they're like infantilization of an entire people are you fucking joking they're saying like we can't even sign our checks like we can't access our money at all molly's funds were restricted but her husband was Uh, her guardian and he's white and he's white 
Cool, everybody. Yep. February 1923, two hunters spot a car at the bottom of a rocky slope. They return to Fairfax and inform authorities that a man was slumped behind the steering wheel. Blood was on the seat and the floor, and the man had been shot in the back of the head. It was a 40-year-old Osage named Henry Roan, and he was married with two children. The book describes him as once having long braids before he was forced to cut them at his boarding school, and his name was Roan Horse before being forced to change it to Henry Roan. He was very close friends with William Hale and often asked him for money because his Money's money fucking tied up. was tied up. So he didn't have like spending money. Mm-hmm. So he would ask Hale and would reimburse him. Pay yeah. him back. Um, a few weeks prior to his death, Roan had called Hale and said, my wife is having an affair and I'm really upset. Yeah. So Hale goes to visit Roan and tries to console him. He asks for money for alcohol and Hale warns him, dude, like it's really kind of dangerous to be drinking this stuff right now. Um, And you could also just get in trouble with the law. And he says, I won't bring it into the town. I'll just hide out. And he wasn't seen again until his body was found. Wow. Side note, Molly was briefly married to Henry when they were teens. It was an Osage arranged marriage that did not last. Okay. Also at this time, she recently had a baby girl with her husband, Ernest, who she named Anna after her sister. Okay. So this is like, things are getting scary. To demonstrate how scared everyone was, the book says they started getting porch lights. Fuck, all right. <laughs> all right. And people are like, another demonstration of wealth by the Osage. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're terrified. Yeah. Yeah, dude. You're killing us. Like, uh, you keep unbelievable fucking killing rates. us. So, yeah, we need a light. Yeah. There's an air of paranoia and fear, obviously. It is like Boogeyman. Like, who is who are they going to pick off next? Right. Exactly. So, they get watchdogs, a lot of people. It's and the- like a lot of uh, Night Stalker. Yeah. Like, the entire city is, like, alive, like, vibrating with the fear of it. Yeah. You know? And the watchdogs end up dead. They're found poisoned. Um, Fuck you. Yeah. Watchdogs end up dead. It's yeah. like, hey, we're here. Yeah. The killer is like, we're here. Just yeah. so you know. Oh, my God. That morning, like, finding the first watchdog dead, dead would be so fucking chilling. Yeah. It's awful. Bill Smith and Molly's sister Rita are so freaked out because they, like, hear noises around their house that they move to a different home. Okay, yeah. So it's March 9th, 1923. Bill Smith drives with a friend to a known bootlegger's ranch. His name's Henry Grammer. Anna had allegedly gotten her whiskey there the night she died. And Henry Roan was allegedly going there to get his whiskey the night he died. So Bill's like, I'm going to go fucking see what's up with this guy, Henry yeah. Grammer. I would like to know, Bill. Grammar was not there. Mm-hmm. But around that night at 3 a.m., there is a loud explosion. Are we at Grammar's home? We're just in town. Okay. We're in town. The force is so strong that it bent trees and blew out neighbors' windows and doors off its hinges. Molly and Ernest wake up because they felt the explosion. Yeah. He says, quote, it shook everything. At first, I thought it was thunder. Molly could see something burning in the distance. Ernest runs outside where people are gathering. They get closer and the crowd starts realizing that it's Bill Smith's house. And it's clearly a bomb. Yeah. What? They go to the house and it's completely decimated. Their old home or their new one? Their new one. They hear a voice calling out from the ass. And it was Bill Smith howling in misery. His wife Rita was laying beside him, and her the back of her head was completely sunken in. She is dead. And they couldn't even find the remains of their white servant Nettie. The explosion was so intense that flesh was plastered on the side of a house 300 feet away. So someone or whoever, the group of people who are doing everything here, they were trying to make so sure that they were going to fucking die that night. Yeah. Wow. Bill is taken out of the rubble, but loses consciousness. He comes back after two days, but after four days, he does die. Yeah. Do we feel like the bootlegger guy they're all going to before they die is like, Kind of like turning them in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're on to us. Yeah. Yeah. Just kill them. Hey, get them next. Because I don't want them poking around. Yeah. Perhaps. Okay. So this is just a little taste of how corrupt everything is. April 1923, the governor of Oklahoma dispatched an investigator named Herman Davis to the county to be like, what the fuck's going on? But by June, Herman Davis had pleaded guilty to bribery and a few months later was pardoned by the governor and then proceeded to rob and murder a lawyer in town. The cop? Okay. By November, the governor himself was impeached and removed from office. What the fuck? So things are just falling apart. This is before like any law ever. Like yeah. there's, there weren't a lot of monopoly laws. There weren't a lot of like corruption laws yet. Yeah. So it's fucking crazy. Yeah. So 
in town, there's an attorney named W.W. Vaughn. He's white. He worked closely with, I only say that because it's very, it's important to the story. It just is. No, it is like always helpful for me to know. Yeah. Um, he had worked closely with the private investigators who were, who tried to find something but never did. Yeah. So in June, Vaughn receives an urgent call from a friend of a man named George Bigheart George saying Bigheart. that George Bigheart is in the hospital. He's very sick, suffering from suspected poisoning. Fuck. He had been rushed to the hospital. Okay. So his friend says, he's telling me, dude, that he has info on the Osage murders, but will only tell it to you. So George? George has info and will only tell it to W.W. Vaughn. Got it. So like speed over here. Before he fucking dies. Exactly. So he heads to his bedside. Before he goes, W.W. Vaughn tells his wife who he has 10 children with. I just put that in because it's like, oh my God. I'm so sorry to Mrs. Vaughn. (laughs) He tells her about a hiding spot in their home where he had stashed evidence that he had collected so far about the murders. If anything should happen, she should turn it over to authorities. Like they'll do anything, but okay. Right. So when Vaughn gets to the hospital, Big Heart shares his information. Vaughn remains at his bedside for several hours until he passes. We don't know what the information is, so Vaughn's gonna die. Just wait. So Vaughn telephones the new sheriff that he has all the information that they need. (gasps) Rushing back to the first train... He runs home. He, like, tries to get home. Yep. When the train pulls into the station the next day, there is no sign of W.W. Vaughn. No. No, Kendall. 36 hours later, his nude body was discovered by the railroad tracks 30 miles away from Oklahoma City. He had been thrown from the train, and his neck was broken. They're everywhere. Whoever's doing everything, like, they're everywhere. everywhere. When his wife went to go look for the evidence, it was gone. So they're on the phone. They're hearing you on the phone? Yeah. How'd they get into her house, dude? What the fuck are we doing? <laughs> um, This is why I'm like, no one talks about this. This is like renowned as being forgotten to history. Like people do not talk about this. This is one of the only books written about it. Why? It is hit because I don't, I don't know why. Because it's native people. So the official death toll is at least 24 tribe members and those two white men who were trying to help. Yeah. So the justice of the peace was being anonymously threatened and just stopped holding inquests into these deaths because he was too scared. He would only talk about these deaths behind bolted doors. I mean, hey, they're, everybody, they're falling. <laughs> they're being bumped off no, left like, and right. You no, know, you're right to be terrified. But like everybody, we need to do something. We can't live like this. <laughs> We're not living at all. And like, yeah, it doesn't even matter. Like, get, get me now or get me later. They're going to get me. <laughs> exactly. OK, the new sheriff didn't even pretend to investigate. He said, quote, I don't want to get mixed up in it. OK, brother, then okay. get a different job. What the fuck? So once again, the Osage tribe is urging the federal government to send investigators who have no ties to the county. Clearly, we needed outside help because this shit is runs deep. Okay. Yeah. We're begging. Yeah. One day, William Hale's pastures were set on fire completely and all his His, cattle died. Oh, my fucking God. My cows. You got them? Spreading for miles. The blaze did, they say. (laughs) (laughs) At this time, understandably, Molly is not doing well. She's consumed by one fear and ill health. She gave her young daughter, Anna, to a relative to take care of. Her yeah. diabetes is not good. And like, I'm barely getting by. Like, we don't know really how to treat ins- or treat diabetes at this point. Okay. So late 1925, a local priest gets a letter from Molly saying that she's worried that her life is in danger. She says, I don't think I'm dying of diabetes. I think I'm being poisoned. You are. Summer 1925. Tom White, a former Texas Ranger and a current special agent of the Bureau of Investigation, which would later turn into the FBI, gets an urgent order from none other than the from Queen J. Edgar Hoover. I was going to say J. Edgar Hoover. To speak with him right away in person. Um, Tom White is like a stand-up guy. Always was, always has been. Doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. And I'm not going to get into the whole history of the FBI. I'm just going to say FBI is new at this point. J. Edgar Hoover is gripping onto his reputation with bare hands he is worried about the reputation of the bureau he wants to make a name for himself he wants to feel like they're a valuable part of the government a lot riding on solving this so a few months earlier agents had persuaded the new governor of oklahoma to release the outlaw blackie thompson to work undercover for the bureau to maybe figure some shit out about these murders. Yep. But he proceeded to rob a bank and kill a police officer. <laughs> I know what you wanted me to do. Yeah. 
that one got away from me. I mean, this is very much the era of like, ha ha, coppers. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know like I mean? a bandit riding away on a horse. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> you can't catch me now. Um, they managed to keep us out of the press, but uh, J. Edgar really wanted to avoid any scandals on the FBI. He was a very much an image person. Right. He wants Tom White to direct an investigation. He's like, you're going to have to move to Oklahoma. Sorry, brother. July 1925, Tom White takes over and starts looking at the old files. He's like, this seems like a long-term, vast conspiracy. A conspiracy to kill. J. Edgar Hoover sends many other agents who will be working undercover for Tom White. Um, one is working as an insurance salesman, a few as ranchers, and a native man will be working as a medicine healer. Okay. And also, okay. I know, but they also have a man in the community, kind of like a, kind of like a rat, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a rat, a good for nothing fucking rat. Is <laughs> this say an informant? An informant, <laughs> um, named Kelsey Morrison. Okay. So through his investigating, Tom White discovers that the undertaker had saved Anna's skull and he is allowed to examine it. So he looks at it and he notices there's no exit hole for the bullet. There's an entry, but there's no exit. So he says there had the to bullet have is been in there. a bullet in her brain, dude. Someone must have taken it. But there were so many people at the site and at the autopsy. There's no way to know. Sure. He investigates. But we have a we have a mole. There's somebody. Somebody in the community. Yeah. Who was like allowed to be in that room or yeah. allowed to be on that fucking is river bank it? or whatever. Yeah. I'll take that bullet. Mm -hmm. He questions the Schoen brothers, the doctors. They deny having done anything. They see like, yes, I see the fact that there's no exit wound, but I we looked what high and low. Do? Yeah, like, sorry, I couldn't find it. Through his investigating, Tom White officially exonerates Oda Brown, Anna's ex-husband, and Rose Osage, the supposedly jealous woman. He, when he finds out, like, or he tries to find out, like, where this Rose Osage rumor even came from, he talks to a woman who confesses that a white man came to her and forced her to sign the paper, saying that she had heard a confession from Rose. What? So he realizes they are not just destroying evidence, they're creating... They're planting it. ...false evidence. What the fuck? Yeah. Okay. So now he's like, the only thing left I see is Brian Burkhart. Who is? Ernest's brother. The last guy the to drive her home. Yeah. Okay. He says, once again, he took her straight home between 4.30 and 5 p.m. Damn, she got drunk in the day, man. She's a fun-loving gal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, Ernest and Brian's family was in town. The racist aunt and uncle. So Ernest, William Hale... Their other aunt and uncle and Brian all went to a musical together and they all testify that he was there. After he dropped her off. After he dropped her off. Yeah, like, where were you all night? With five close friend family members, I don't was you know? seeing a play. Yeah. The uncle and aunt confirm. They go to visit the uncle and aunt in Texas and they once again confirm he was there the whole night. Yeah, okay. So... In August 1925, Tom White hears from a few different witnesses that they saw Anna in a car with Brian later that night. Oh, fuck. So he might have been, tr been true in taking her home, but had gone back out with her because they had dated. Okay. He dropped her off. He did go to the theater with the family mm -hmm. and then he returned to pick her up for like a date that night. Perhaps. Okay. Got it. Witnesses say they saw the two of them go to a few speakeasies. Okay. And then finally leave at 3 a.m. in the presence of a mysterious third man. No. We do not know who the third man is. <laughs> no. Okay. Did he set her up? I don't know, girl. Okay. So Tom White is suspecting that he has a mole in his operation. You do, brother. I'm here to tell you. As soon as... every time you get anything, mm -hmm. as soon as they put stuff in their reports, it seems that many unauthorized people already know about it. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. So they get a tip that Pike, one of the early PIs that was hired, mm -hmm. knows the identity of the third man and had actually spoken with him. The tip says that Pike will not speak to the agents unless he's paid handsomely. Oh, fuck you, Pike. So they finally track him down in Tulsa, and he says, listen, I wasn't hired to solve the murder. I was hired to muddy up the evidence and conceal Brian Burkhardt's whereabouts. Oh, I was God. tasked with manufacturing evidence and creating a false alibi. He says his directives came from William Hale. <gasps> 
everybody's grandpa, everybody's uncle in town, William Hale. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel like I'm watching Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so Pike could not answer if Hale was just protecting Brian of like, I, he's my he's my nephew. I want to protect him. Like, I know he didn't do it. So yeah. like, make it look like he didn't do it. Or if there was something more sinister going on. Okay. 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 He also revealed that in his meetings with Hale and Brian, there was also another man there. Ernest Burkhart. Okay. No, that is what you get when you <laughs> let men into the inner circle. Yeah. They will kill you, you and birth. rob you and betray you. <laughs> so Tom, our investigator, oh my God, goes to talk with the nurse who had been at Bill Smith's bedside after the explosion. Yep. For the four days he's alive. Yes. He was like, did he say anything? Like, did he did say... He, did he murmur a word? Right. Did he have any last words? Yep. Whatever. And she says that before he died, he had met with his lawyer and the Schoen brother doctors. She assumed that maybe he had made a statement to them. And they say he never did say who blew him up. Okay, brother. But we do learn that during that meeting, James Schoen was made the executor of Rita's will. If these fucking doctor brothers are involved. So Tom White is like, this is really corrupt. Before 1925, guardians of the Osage people had pilfered $8 million directly from the top of the accounts. I'm sure they're doing that fucking day in and day out. In 1924, the Indian Rights Association called it, quote, an orgy of graft and exploitation. Oh, Quote, rich Indians are being shamelessly and openly robbed in a scientific and ruthless manner. Guardianships were handed out by judges to supporters. Quote, vote for me and I will give you a favorable guardianship. The investigation by the Indians Rights Association found an instance of a widow being told that all of her money was gone and she was left to live in poverty. Her baby gets sick and she begs the guardian to give her money. He refuses and her baby dies. Wow. One of the undercover agents working for Tom White hears from a woman that lives on some of William Hale's property that he set fire to his own pasture for insurance money. And it also made it look like they were after him, yeah. too. Yeah. You fucking scheming son So Tom White starts to think about the fact that I haven't mentioned yet, <laughs> that Hale was Henry Roan's life insurance beneficiary. Oh, my God. And he always said it was because Henry Roan owed him so much money. Because he would um, lend him money. Lend him in the meantime, pay you back when my, when my yeah. guardian is back in town. Yeah. So he tells Tom that like, no, me and Henry decided to do this together because he owed me like 20 grand. Sure. But the insurance salesman says that's not what happened. He says that William Hale had pushed for the policy and had no evidence of the supposed debt. He says he'd shopped for doctors until he found one that would recommend Roan for a policy. The doctor is quoted as saying, what are you going to do? Kill this Indian? Hell yes, William Hale replied. Fuck off. There is still no concrete evidence tying anyone to anything. Tom, Fuck off. Yeah. Tom also discovers that William Hale had attempted to buy Henry Roan's head right before he died. But this was not legal. They, you could not do that. He tried to buy the, um, the inherited land. Yes, you cannot buy it. You have and to inherit it. But there were some people in the government trying to lobby to pass a bill saying you could buy it. Yeah, I'm sure. But Tom White thinks instead of waiting around for this to become legal, he just goes for an insurance scheme. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the only way to get a head right is through inheritance. Who has been inheriting a ton of them? Anna's head rights went to Lizzie, the mom. Lizzie's Molly, no, girl, mommy. <laughs> Lizzie's head rights went to Rita. And then Rita's Rita. head rights went to Molly. Molly, you're in danger, girl. <laughs> Molly's in danger, girl. Oh, fuck. And he, yeah. Ernie. Ernie. Ernie, you better not. Rita's will also said that if her and her husband died simultaneously, all of their money would go to Molly. But if one of them died before the other, it would go to Bill's family. But Bill unexpectedly survived for a few days. So some of their money went to his relatives. Okay. But the bomb was intended to wipe them out at once. Together. Yep. To make it all go to Molly. Who controls Molly's money? Her Ernest. fucking man. Who's William Hale to Ernest? His uncle. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> I can't believe you wormed your way back to it. Only some of this is insurance. I'm livid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Oh my fucking God. So at this point, Tom White is not sure if marrying Molly was part of the long-term plot or if he had been convinced to betray her after their marriage. Okay, so I'm just going to tell you again how corrupt this is. The chief of police in Fairfax had been known to take money from William Hale. The mayor of Fairfax was Hale's closest friend. Federal official who worked for the Indian Affairs Office said said that everyone in the power of William Hale will do what William Hale says. Hale has dominated local politics and seemingly cannot be punished. So it is clear to Tom White that like high society white men are not providing any real testimony. So he goes to the outlaws. Dick Gregg, a 23-year-old (laughs) stick-up, is in a Kansas jail. Mm-hmm. He says he met with William Hale in the summer of 1922 with his gang, the Al Spencer gang. Cool. He says that Hale asked him to kill Bill Smith and Rita. They said, we don't kill women. <laughs> that is really charming. Right. So Tom White also hears that Henry Grammer, the bootlegger, might have been involved. Yep. Suspiciously, he died in a car crash and can no longer be interviewed. Uh-huh. Before he could rat. They also hear that Henry's associate, Asa Kirby, might be involved, but he was shot dead while committing a robbery. The shop owner had been tipped off about an upcoming robbery by William Hale. But Asa Kirby had been told that he should rob that place by By William William Hale. (laughs) At this time, Hale is buying people gifts all over town. He's just giving people fur coats. Buying favor. Oh, my God. October 1925, they get a tip that an inmate at the state penitentiary, Bert Lawson, may have some information. He says in the pen in 1918 that he started working as a ranch hand for Bill Smith and grew to know William Hale and the Burkharts. He said that in 1921, he, quote, discovered an intimacy between his wife and Bill Smith. This broke up his family and he left the ranch. Ernest Burkhart knew that Bert Lawson hated Bill Smith. Mm-hmm. You broke up my family. And a year later went to visit him and said, hey, I've got a proposition. I want you to blow up and kill Bill, Bill Smith and his wife. Because oh. I know you hate him. Bert says no. Then Hale comes himself and offers $5,000. He says, use nitroglycerin. He keeps saying, no, I won't. And then Bert Lawson gets arrested for murdering a fisherman. Damn, I did that. Yeah, I did do that. And Hale, because he knows everybody, is allowed to go visit inmates at any time. And he goes in and tells them, hey, I'll get you out of what you're in if you do that thing I've been fucking telling you to do. He says, I know you need a fucking lawyer and I know you don't have any money. Oh my fucking God. So one night, William Hale and Ernest and a deputy sheriff sneak Burt Lawson out of his prison cell. Fuck you. And drive to the Smith's house. He plants a box full of nitroglycerin with a long, like, fuse. fuse in the basement. He lights it. They take him out, take him back to jail. And the, obviously the house blows up. All, while all this is happening, Molly is still very sick. The Schoen brothers have been showing up and giving her injections of what they're saying is called insulin. No. But is it? No. Because she seems to be getting worse. They're in on it too. Fuck me. (laughs) Bill was the only motherfucker actually trying to figure it out. Yeah. Damn. And like Barney McBride and W.W. Vaughn, they tried to Mm -hmm, help and they're mm -hmm, dead. mm -hmm. January 4th, 1926, Tom is like, I have to act. Like, I might not have all the evidence, but like, people are going to die. die. She'll die for sure. Yes. He's like, there, sure. Are there some contradictions in Burt Lawson's confession? Yes. But, I mean, I have to move forward. Yeah. He obtains arrest warrants for William Hale and Ernest Burkhart for the murder of Bill and Rita Smith and their servant, Nettie. They apprehend Ernest and Hale turns himself in. And he's very cocky. You know, I can buy you. Beyond approach. I am like, I know everybody here. He's He, like, says at one point, he's like, I have everyone on my, like, payroll from the road worker to the, the judge, the county judge. Fuck, man. So they interrogate Ernest and he denies everything. Tom is starting to feel like, I might have jumped the gun because Ernest is not seeding a thing. The next day, Hale says he has proof that he had signed for a telegram in Texas on the night of the bombing and therefore could not have been there like Burt Lawson said he was. Mm -hmm. So in a last ditch effort, Tom goes to see Blackie Thompson, the guy who the feds had let out a little while ago and had embarrassed them by killing a police officer and robbing a bank. Yep. So in a last ditch effort, he goes to see Blackie Thompson. He says... Black, he says, that Hale and Ernest had approached him about killing the Smiths. Okay. So Tom goes back to Ernest. Ernest stills denying it, but they bring Blackie in and Ernest is stunned. Hi. They like bring him and they're like, Blackie, tell him what you told me. Later that night, Tom White hears that Ernest is ready to talk. He goes in 
And he goes on and on about how he had always worshipped his uncle William Hale. Yep. And always followed his orders. He says that he wasn't privy to all of his plots, but he was aware about the plan to blow up the Smith house. He said he protested, but eventually went along with it. He says he approached Blackie first, then the Al Spencer gang, then Henry Grammer, who promised to provide a man for the job. The bootlegger? Yep. Grammer said that Asa Kirby would do it. Turns out, Burt Lawson had nothing to do with it. What the fuck? Quote, all that story I told was a lie. All I know about the Smith blow-up was what I heard in jail. Ernest said that Hale was in Texas that night on purpose. Okay, let me get that straight. Yeah. That entire thing that Burt... Lawson... The the reason we arrested Ernest is a lie. But... A lie that, like, happened to hit on the truth. Yeah. A lie that was like, well, they did ask other people. And it was Asa Kirby. Like, Just it happened like, to another guy. Yeah, like, put in a different, like, lackey. Yeah. You know? Kirby. And Henry Grammer, okay. the bootlegger. So, Ernest also says that Hale had hired a man to kill Henry Roan. They bring in that man named Ramsey, and he confesses to shooting Henry Roan. He was the one in the car. Who Hale was like a fucking father yes, to. Yes, exactly. That the man who had confessed to shooting him was named Ramsey. He says that Henry Grammer told him to. He says he lured Henry Roan with alcohol, because we know he was looking for alcohol from Henry Grammer that day. Wasn't Hale the one who was like, Yep. Go to Henry Grammer. Yeah. He says he lured Henry Roan with alcohol and they drank together. When he got back in his car to leave, he shot him in the back of the head. Wow. Ernest reveals the identity of the third man that was involved in Anna's death. None other than informant Kelsey Morrison. He was working both sides. He was the mole. Yeah. The rat we talked about a lot earlier. He was the trigger man and killed Anna Brown. And he was informing for both sides. Yes. After all this, they get Molly the fuck out of her house and she almost immediately feels, feels better. better. Yes. Ernest never talks about this at all. He never seeds anything about her being poisoned or anything. Tom White interrogates the doctors again. They never admit anything. Um, at this point, Molly is in shock and refuses to believe that Ernest is involved at all. Okay. So the investigators try to confront Hale. And according to the people who were close to Anna, they had been having an affair and he was the father of her baby. She and Hale? Yeah. Holy fuck, Hale. <laughs> Your fingers in every pie. It's <laughs> really wild. Tom White outlines all the evidence they have on him, but Hale is undisturbed and would not confess a thing. And Hale wanted to have Anna killed? Yeah. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Son of a bitch. So uh, Tom had not yet connected Hale to like every murder because there have been so many. There are two. There are like 30. Yeah. But he was, you know, working on gathering evidence. Um, Tom, I'm worried for you. For example, Hale was seen with Charles Big heart hours before he ended up in the hospital okay hale had made a six thousand dollar claim against his estate with a forged creditor's note after his oh, death another he owed me money in yep. life and yep. now i want it in death yep fuck you you're like you're not fucking rich enough yeah uh-huh he was also Greedy implicated fucker. in the poisoning death of joe bates Hear that he, joe bates was the guy who came home after he like went out and like drank some whiskey and, and died yeah he attempted to get money from the estate by saying that Joe had signed it over to him before he died. But his widow wrote a note to the Office of Indian Affairs saying, quote, William Hale kept my husband drunk for over a year. Wow. He was always trying to get him to sell it, but he refused no matter how drunk he was. He did not sell it. William Hale got the land anyway. So here we are. And Evil. are we going to think like now that they're arrested, everything's solved? No. no. Because the, the judicial system is as corrupt as the law enforcement. A federal prosecutor said it was useless and dangerous to try to try Hale in the state legal system. Okay. But jurisdiction is also like a confusing thing. So it's like, is it tribal land? Is it sure. Oklahoma land? Like sure. what's going on? So Anna's murder was in the state's jurisdiction, but Henry Roan's was technically on tribal land, which was federal jurisdiction. Okay, yeah. So they decide to move forward with Henry Roan's case first. So Hale and Ramsey, the trigger man, were charged in the federal court with Roan's murder. They faced the death penalty. After retaining a lawyer, Ramsey recanted his confession completely. Uh And throughout the trial, at least two witnesses are charged with perjury or, quote, attempting to intoxicate jurors. What the fuck? Sketchy private eyes are stalking jurors and they are worried that some might be assassins. Yeah, I'm worried. If I were a juror, I'd be... I'm a coward. I might not be a juror. Exactly. (laughs) Kelsey Morrison, the informant and killer of Anna Brown. Yep. The fucking the mole. Yep. Tried to hire someone to kill his Osage wife 
because she knew too much about the Anna Brown plot. What? We can't keep killing our fucking wives. But apparently we can. Ernest has not been arrested yet. Where is he, do you think? Like a room in town? He's staying with Molly. She doesn't think that he did anything. Molly, babe, he killed your whole family. (laughs) We can't. Come on. He asks for federal protection because he's like, "Um, you see what's going on? I'm going to be killed, of course. Yeah, I confessed. Like, I'm going to get killed. So um, they give him federal protection. Molly still does not believe that he was intentionally guilty of anything. Okay. This is her journey. Who are we to judge? I know, Molly. I know. This is so horrible. And like, truly, her whole family is gone. Her whole to family. lose your one remaining like loved one. Too much. Horrible. And to think that he did, did it. it. Mentally, it might like, you might just block it. Truly. People have blocked way less. I have. Mm. But God damn. He's living in your home and he killed all your family. But God damn. March 1st, 1926, the judge agrees with the defense and rules that the murder location does not qualify as tribal land and can only be adjudicated in state court. Bad news for us. So the prosecution appeals to the Supreme Court. Fuck you. But that could take months. So they have to release Hale and Ramsey. But while they're celebrating in court, the new sheriff arrests them both for the bombing murders. Okay, party. So they don't go anywhere. So it's Hale and Ramsey's trial for the bombings. Molly is now outcast from both societies. Uh, the press portrays her as ignorant slur for native people. Uh-huh. And the native people are like, why are you defending your white husband who obviously killed your family? Yeah. So she's outcast. Okay. Ernest is called to testify against Hale and Ramsey in the bombing trial. Hale calls him a traitor to his own blood. Ernest gets on the stand. Before he can say anything, one of Hale's lawyers asks the judge if he can confer privately with Ernest, which is not an allowed thing. No, no, (laughs) no. I'm no lawyer, but I know that's not allowed. They allow it. 20 minutes go by. And then they call him back in. And the lawyer says, you know what, judge, I'd like the court to allow Mr. Burkhart until tomorrow so he can confer with the defense. They grant it. When they show up tomorrow, Burkhart is no longer testifying for the state and is actually testifying for the defense. You fucking worm. Bit by bit on on the stand, he recants his entire confession. Worm. (laughs) Can you fucking believe? Uh -uh, I can't fucking believe these guys. (laughs) Trying to salvage their case, Tom White and everyone file charges against Ernest as a co-conspirator in the bombing. But the most important evidence that they have, the Ramsey confession and the Ernest confession, have all been recanted. So it's not looking good. So during Ernest's trial, Hale, Ramsey, and Ernest all testify that they had been physically abused by the FBI and taunted about the electric chair they said that Tom White was like, do you smell that flesh burning, boys? Like, oh, please. Yeah. That's not, doesn't sound like Tom. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Tom. And so fucking J. Edgar Hoover gets a fucking press wind about this. And is like, excuse me. He actually says, this does not sound like Tom. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I don't believe this, but straighten up. Yeah. I can't have a bad look yeah. on me. So they say they have been coerced into confessing, which happens, but not in this case. Yep. To try to further salvage their case, they ask known rat Kelsey Morrison to testify that Hale had hired him to kill Anna Brown. Mm -hmm. Side note, in June, in the middle of the trial, Molly's four-year-old daughter, Anna, who she handed off to family, fell ill and died. Wow. A few days after that, Ernest changes his plea to guilty. He says, quote, I want to admit exactly what I did. They make him sign something that says he wasn't abused by the FBI and that he wasn't coerced. And then he does say that Hale's lawyers encouraged him to lie about that on the stand. No shit. He was sentenced to life in prison and hard labor on June 21st, 1926. Bye, Ernie. So Kelsey Morrison. Informant. Informant does testify that he had been hired by Hale to kill Anna. Uh He says that Hale had recruited him to, quote, bump that slur off and had given him the weapon. Brian Burkhart had acted as an accomplice. After making sure that Anna was good and drunk, they drove out to the Three Mile Creek. Morrison's wife at the time, Cole, was with them and he told her to stay in the car. Then he and Brian grabbed hold of Anna. She was too drunk to walk, he recalled. They carried her down to the ravine. Eventually, Brian helped Anna sit up on a rock by the creek. He raised her up. A defense attorney asked if they pulled her up and he said yes. The attorney asked, did you tell him in what position to hold her while you shot her in the head? Yes, sir. You stood there and directed him on how to hold this drunken, helpless Indian woman in the bottom of that canyon while you got ready to shoot a bullet into her brain? Yes, sir. Then when he got her just in the position you wanted to have her, 
You then shot a bullet from this 380 automatic? Yes, sir. Did you move her after you shot her? No, sir. So Kelsey confesses, obviously. Mm -hmm. So you brought this woman out to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And you and your fucking buddy propped her up and shot her. Yeah. Right. So around this time, the Supreme Court actually rules that Henry Roan's death was tribal land, and therefore they could go back to federal court. By the end of July, the Henry Roan trial begins. But there is some real concern about, will a white jury ever convict two white men of killing a native person? One reporter noted, quote, the attitude of a pioneer cattleman toward the full-blood Indian is fairly well recognized. It is a question in my mind whether this jury is considering a murder case or not. The question for them to decide is whether a white man killing an Osage is murder or merely cruelty to animals. No. So we're actually trying to determine whether murdering a native person is like killing a person or hurting an animal. Well, not legally, but like, do they mentally think that? But that is like what a jury is trying to like differentiate in their mind. Yeah. Is killing a native person as bad as killing a real person? Exactly. It's like the less dead. But for this trial... Ernest testifies honestly. He tells the truth. But on August 20th, there is a hung jury. There is also a hung jury for the trial of Brian Burkhart when he was charged with the murder of Anna Brown. They retry Ramsey and Hale. How are you a hung jury? They were up there. Did you hear the transcript of what what he He talked about in court? Yeah. So you purposely killed a woman. Yep. Yeah. Hung jury. Yeah. What the fuck is our question? I I know what the question is. Okay. So they retry Hale and Ramsey for the murder of Henry Roan in October of that year. They are both found guilty of first degree murder and are sentenced to life in prison. Huh. I know. So you killed a man. A native man is somehow more dead than a native woman? (sighs) Yeah. So the next year, they're once again prosecuting Anna Brown's murder. Kelsey Morrison, the guy who confessed on the stand, is convicted. And soon after that, Molly divorces Ernest. She has come around and, yeah, gets rid of that. After the trials, Congress passes a law prohibiting anyone from inheriting head rights without being at least half Osage. So you cannot inherit them through through murder anymore. (laughs) White people cannot come in, cozy up to a native person, and then fucking murder them. Exactly. Over the years, William Hale never admitted to anything. But on April 21st, 1931, a court ruled that Molly Burkhart was no longer a ward of the state. It is further ordered, adjudged, and decreed by the court that Molly Burkhart is hereby restored to competency. And the order heretofore made adjudging her to be incompetent person is hereby vacated. At 44, Molly could finally spend her money as she pleased and was recognized as a full American citizen. Uh, In 1928, Molly married a part white, part Creek man named John Cobb. Molly ended up dying in June 1937 at the age of 50 from natural causes. That same year, Ernest was paroled, but he he almost immediately robbed an Osage home and was sent back to prison. Ernie, what the fuck? Yeah. In 1947, William Hale was released after serving 20 years in Leavenworth. He died in 1962. In 1966, Ernest applied for a pardon because he was banned from Oklahoma. So he asked for a pardon to be brought back to Oklahoma so he could live there. And it was granted. So the author of this book, David Gran, goes to like the Osage territory and speaks to like the great granddaughter of Molly. And she talks about how her dad acted, Ernie's son acted when Ernest came back into town. Ernest eventually moved into a mice infested trailer outside of Osage County. And when he died in 1986, wow, <laughs> he was cremated and his ashes were given to his son in a box. Ernest had left instructions with his son to spread them around the Osage Hills. The granddaughter says those ashes were in the house for days, just sitting there. Finally, one night, my dad got real mad and took the box and chucked it over a bridge. Okay, yeah. The author also goes to another town and visits the Osage Nation Museum, where he met with the longtime director, Catherine Redcorn. He sees a photograph in the museum that was like a panorama, and it was taken at a ceremony in 1924. Um, It was of tribe members alongside prominent local businessmen. He scanned the picture and noticed that a section was missing, as if it had been cut, cut up. He asked the director what happened to that part of the photograph, and she said it's too painful to show. When he asked why, she pointed to the blank space and said the devil was standing right there. They had cut out William K. Hale, who was staring coldly at the camera. 
In 2011, after an 11-year legal battle, the U.S. government agreed to settle a lawsuit brought by the Osage for $380 million. And that's it. Okay. <laughs> what a fucking journey. <laughs> what a fucking journey. Oh, I feel really upset I hope I did. That. I hope I didn't forget anything. Oh, oh. And to mention, the depression and everything like ravaged the Osage community and the oil production. So... They don't have anything anymore, essentially. Like the great granddaughter, whatever. She's like, we get like royalties every once in a while, but it's nothing to like live on. Like yeah. it was, there was a height, there was a heyday, and it's gone now, you know? Yeah. And during the heyday, we were fucking robbed, killed. blind, and killed the entire time. Yep. Yes. Okay, beautiful. Um, yeah. I really suggest reading the book, though. It's fucking incredible. Um, feel free to absorb that information. I am. I am. Feel free to share it. Um, as yeah. the way you heard it, tell no one. Bye. Bye.